two weeks ago today, approximately 30,000 runners gathered at the starting line of the Mexico City Marathon. Those 30,000 heard the starting gun and began their race, 26.2 miles. I can't imagine running a marathon in any conditions, but running a marathon in Mexico City at the end of August sounds particularly trying. But, racers finished. However, in the two weeks that have come since that race was completed, race organizers and officials have uncovered over 11,000 of the 30,000 runners cheated. And it's not that they cheated like unintentionally where an official mistakenly lined out the course wrong. No, it is found that some 11, over 11,000 started the race and then whether it was through car or bicycle or public transportation, they found ways to bypass much of the course before they finished the race. 11,000 seems like a lot to me when you talk about that kind of thing. And my first reaction when I read that was to think to myself, huh, mm, boy, what kind of person would do that? And then I started reading about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I started to realize that I, and I think many of us, before we look at instances like that and shake our head with disdain, we should see that we are a lot more like those runners than we would want to admit or acknowledge. See, what this passage shows us is that just like those racers in Mexico City, they couldn't fool electronic tracking data, they couldn't fool race officials. As we run the race of life, we can't fool God might be able to fool others. You might even have yourself fooled. But when it comes to the true condition of our hearts in regards to our love for God, our love for neighbor, we don't have anyone fooled. We don't have him fooled. See, this passage serves as the scalpel by which God performs surgery and real, reveals the dangerousness of our own self-deception. This passage shows us that we must forsake self-righteousness and run to Christ. Forsake self-righteousness and run to Christ. I invite you to follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. Now, I'm about to do something risky. I normally don't recommend risky things in preaching. But I'm going to argue that this parable is not what many of us, what many of you perhaps likely think it's about. Many people read this parable and hear some exhortation towards great sacrificial love for neighbor, even for those who are difficult for us to love. But do you remember the sermon of a couple of weeks ago where I used the illustration, you remember Jesus when he was talking about uh, 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 all the hard things that a person must be willing to commit to and must give up in order to follow him. We're in this section where Jesus is laying everything out before his audience on what it takes to truly follow him. And so I think what this passage is serving as is, is I used the illustration a couple of weeks ago, like when you're going through the security at the airport and you've got to take all these things out of your pocket, you've got you to kind of get rid of anything extra uh, in order to get passed through security, in order to get from point A, pre-security, to point B, the other side of security. And what Jesus says, you're going to follow me, you have to forsake, you have to lay aside all these other things or you cannot get to me. And so what I think he's showing us that we must lay aside in the parable of the Good Samaritan is any vain notions of our own self-righteousness. See, what Jesus is doing with our hearts, with our souls, our lives, is that this metal detector is going to beep if any of us try to to walk through with any kind of self-righteousness. See, he's not saying in this, I don't think he's not saying you just need to love your neighbor better. He's saying you need to give up any notions of trusting in your own self-righteousness. Said another way, he says, we all need to be honest with ourselves. And we are far too often dishonest. And he starts by showing us the problems of the dishonesty of a lawyer. The problem, this sermon can be broken into two parts. The first of which is the problem of dishonest self-justification. The problem of dishonest self-justification. This account begins with a lawyer who stood up. Jesus is in the midst of teaching, and he stands up, and likely in response to Jesus making some audacious claim about following him. And this lawyer says, all right, all right, I know my Old Testament well enough. That's what he was, a lawyer, one steeped in knowledge of, in study of, the Old Testament law. So he stands up and he says, these claims of Jesus, they're, what this guy's saying, I'm smart enough to know this, but it looks like these other people around me are starting to believe what this guy's saying. I need to, need to pump the brakes on this for the sake of my neighbors here around me. And so verse 25, he stood up, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a reason why I think this passage is not primarily about you must love your neighbor. Because if that's what it's about, then Jesus is preaching some kind of works-based righteousness. You love your neighbor well enough, you love God well enough, and you'll inherit eternal life. I don't think that's what's happening. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says in verse 26, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer was well-versed in his Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. These commands are actually a really good summation 
of the whole of the Old Testament law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Look how Jesus responds to him. Verse 28, he said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If Jesus ever puts me to the test, I want to answer in a way where Jesus responds, yeah, you're right. Good answer. But look at how the lawyer responds in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This response to Jesus says everything about this man and about you and me. He stands before Jesus and says, hey, hey, actually, I know you just said good answer. One one more thing. I just want to make sure we don't have any technicalities here. I need further explanation because I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm clear here. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Is it my family? You got it. My friends, I'll go, I'll go to bat for them seven days a week. Is it my literal neighbors, those in town? Okay, if I need to do these things, if I need to care for those who are within three houses of me, those that are on my block, those in my community, consider it done, sign me up. If I need to support charitable causes in town, where do I volunteer at the food pantry? If I need to do things that are outside of my own comfort zone, where can I volunteer at the animal shelter? You name it, Jesus, and I will be a good neighbor. You just tell me where I need to be a good neighbor. Maybe you think about God. Maybe regularly you, you, you think these things about, okay, what, what's my relationship with God like? What does God think of me? Or maybe you don't really think of that very much at all. Well, I think we all kind of play games where we think about how do I measure up? Maybe we don't think about it directly in relationship to God, but we play the comparison game with others. Maybe you try to do like this man, okay, okay I'll do it. Or, or you compare yourself to your neighbor or someone in your life that they're particularly demanding or difficult or rude. And you say, well, I'm not that guy. Thank goodness I'm not like him or not like her. You have disagreements or fights with your spouse and you say, Man, he was really out of line. Doesn't he see how much I do around here? Or you have a really demanding boss and you think, oh, goodness. I know I'd like to advance in my career, but I know I don't want to be like her. I I want to try to treat those around me with kindness, with respect. We see, we generally go about our business making comparisons with others, maybe not thinking of it in light of our relationship with God, or how it affects something like eternity and life after death, but just subtly thinking, you know, I'm trying my best, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, I think that'll be good enough. See, we all have within us this inner defense attorney. This inner defense attorney that we so desperately need to fire. We try to get off on technicalities. We try to tell ourselves, you know, if you go to church, if you be a good neighbor, that should be able to get you, to, get you taken care of in the eyes of the judge. You'll get off for good behavior. As Christians, this is particularly absurd, is it not? The Christian gospel is the message that we in our own strength cannot achieve our righteousness before God. So we must trust Him by faith in Christ and in His work. Yet the way that the law works, or this command towards obedience, is that it's born out of God's work in us. It is not something we do to earn His work in us. Or it's born out of His grace that He has poured out on us, not something we do to earn His grace. Yet we so much have these inner tendencies, don't we? To try to justify ourselves by our good deeds, by our works. Think about it. 
when you go outside of your comfort zone to try to show love and generosity to someone that is maybe a little more difficult to love, you subtly think to yourself, well, that'll put a couple extra marks in my favorable column before God. Maybe not trying to earn righteousness or heaven, but just thinking, okay, he owes me one. We subtly believe that God owes us for our good attendance to church or we think if I keep my head down, work hard, take care of my responsibilities to family or serve those less fortunate, then God will bless me in some manner and this will be helpful down the road. So we're like this lawyer that we develop a structured mechanical understanding for how our life and our relationship to God ought to operate. If I do A, B, and C, I have eternal life waiting for me and I've done my part here. But here's the difference though. We think about this like an x-ray. It reveals anything broken, anything that causes our bodies to not be operating structurally. You can't walk, why? Well, the x-ray shows you have a broken ankle. But we develop these notions of our own righteousness and think we're walking fine. But what the Good Samaritan does is it does more than an x-ray. The parable of the Good Samaritan serves as an MRI. It reveals the cancer of our hearts, of this self-reliance that thinks we can trust in our own righteousness or in the justifications that our inner defense lawyer presents for our defense. The x-ray says nothing's wrong. The MRI says you have a terrible cancer of your own self-justification before God. And so we see this problem of dishonest self-justification, but now we see the grace in honest self-evaluation in verses 30 to 37. And Jesus begins to carefully, gracefully probe the depths of our hearts as he gives this parable. Verse 29, re-entering the story. We have the lawyer desiring to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Pause right here. The, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously treacherous. It was down... It was about a 17-mile journey, winding and going through mountains with crags and rocks that robbers and others could hide in. As Jesus' audience is hearing this, it's as if I were going to tell you a story today, and I said, it was a dark and rainy night, and so-and-so had to walk through a dark, uh, 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 dimly lit alley. You know, it's like, it's like you're just waiting for, oh, something bad to happen to that person. So Jesus starts telling this story. And then verse 31 picks up. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. Just FYI, Levites were the tribe of Levi. They served for the functioning and the equipping of the temple. And now when Jesus, when he came, or, or excuse me, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Remember the significance of Samaritans? Pause here. Remember just a couple, what, what, what happened with Samaritans when they were last mentioned in this gospel? James and John were wanting to call down fire from heaven to destroy the people of Samaria. They had rejected Jesus. The Samaritans were known across time and history for, for rejecting the, the God of Israel. They had broken off from the people of Israel. They had intermarried with other people and started worshiping their gods. Their relationships with the people of Israel were marked by skirmishes, violence, disagreement, strife. Relationships between Jews and Samaritans were very, very, very tense, difficult, ugly. And so Jesus says, 
The Samaritan came and he had compassion on him. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And that's that. Remember how I said this passage is primarily not intended to tell us to love our neighbors and nothing more. If that was the case, we would have this conflict with the gospel itself. Remember, the whole thing begins verse 25 with this man saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus tells him, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And by loving your neighbor, I mean give of yourself at total and complete cost. At great risk to your own livelihood. Without fear of reprisal or willing, and, and being willing to suffer hurt, being willing to be taken advantage of, being willing to be embarrassed in as, being associated with those you are helping. Oh, and your neighbor is actually the kind of person in this world that you despise most. And we get to the end of the parable and the lawyer's response tells us everything. Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And look at it. He says the one, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. I think the lawyer is absolutely defeated here. I think that's what's happening. He knows that he does not have this kind of love for neighbor in him. He knows that he cannot muster in his heart any kind of charity towards Samaritans that will make him uh, that, 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 that will manifest itself in this kind of radical love. He's greatly troubled because up to this point, he has been relying upon his own merit to earn eternal life. Remember, he's got all the answers. Jesus said, hey, your answers, they're right. But the problem is his response. See, here's what I think needed to happen. If, this, if Jesus says to this lawyer, says, the, he says, well, what does the law say? And the lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you are correct. Go and do likewise. If the, neighbor, if, if, the, if the lawyer responds, not by trying to justify himself, but by coming to Jesus and saying, how do I do that? That is impossible. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, loving your neighbor as yourself, there are times I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are times I don't love my neighbor. There are times where I hate people around me. It would be then that Jesus would say to the man, you are exactly right. And the good news is, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. You are much closer to receiving the grace of God than you even realize because you are come to the realization that you cannot earn it yourself. But that's not the attitude of the lawyer. The attitude of the lawyer is one where he, rec- where he refuses to trust in anything outside of himself, 
He thinks he can manifest it in himself. And when Jesus says you need a heart change that you cannot do, that's what he reveals in this parable. The man is undone. And so what Jesus is holding up before us is he's saying, if you want to come near me, you want to follow me, then you must forsake any notions of self-righteousness where you think you enter before me by anything other than my grace. See, as long as you deceive yourself, justify yourself apart from seeing the demands of the law upon your soul, you'll either be this lawyer or you'll be totally arrogantly unaware. You'll see the real requirements of the law and you will be undone because you have found you cannot do it in your own strength. See, here's something totally fascinating about this passage and about Christianity. Following Jesus and, and, and following Him in accord with His Word often puts us in places, in categories, where we cannot easily explain them in our current cultural climate, in our current cultural world, in, in, in how we understand things in our day and age. Here's what I mean. See, this passage addresses two very common misconceptions about what it means to follow Jesus, and it lays both of them open and proves them wanting. Okay? So the first misconception is this passage exposes the folly of right belief with wrong practice. Remember? The, 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 the lawyer on the pop quiz that Jesus gives him on what it means to inherit eternal life, what's he do? He passes. A plus. Ding. You got all the right answers right by the textbook. Bada bing, bada boom. You quoted Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You summed up the law great. Your law degree, good investment. But his practice is off, right? He doesn't love his neighbor. Jesus is saying, you can have all the answers, but if you do not love your neighbor, you're entirely missing the boat. But now then there's this other way that we might look at things where we might say, well, okay, I, this world is all about love. All this world needs, we just need to love one another more. We need to love one another more. We need to love, 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 love. In fact, if I were to go out and stand out right on the sidewalk on Country Way, if I were to go out there and take an ink pen and a pad of paper and let's say survey people for an hour that just walk past or walk the dog or ride the bike or whatever, and I just said, what do you think this world needs more of? What do you think will make this world a better place? I, it, it, I haven't done it. I don't have scientific results. But i got to think if we would just love one another would be a popular answer. But here's where the parable confronts such a mindset. The answer is not some kind of empty, detached idea of just loving other people. Because the reality is, is Jesus is saying by this parable, you can't love others the way that you need to love them. Here's how I know this. And here's how you know this. No matter how hard you try, you have people in your life that are difficult to love. You know how I know that? Because I have people in my life that are difficult to love. You have, you have people in your life, in your world, that you, 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 you either look at how they view the world through a different lens, they're of a different political stripe, or you, they look at the world through a different entire worldview, and they think Christianity and, 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 and our, what, we, what the Bible teaches is, is, is harmful and destructive, and they see how these things are in opposition to one another, and we say, we don't know how to love those who are different than us. 
I'm not saying we say that as a church. I'm saying we say this as a culture. You see, if you have some of those same people who, who say all this world needs is more love, if you go look at their social media or you, you, you prick their heart and get an idea into their heart, you'll see that they love those who view the world like they do. But they don't have much love for those who view the world entirely differently. And we have the same problem. And so here's what this shows us. It shows us these cultural notions of love all sound well and good, but if you were to, to, to actually try to get deep into the heart, deep into the soul of what that means, we do not have the ability to muster it within us. Everybody agrees that we need more love in the world, but animosity, tension, vitriol, between both sides of the political aisle, between those of different races, different economic classes, you name it, those tensions only continue to rise higher and higher in this day and age. Why is that? Because you can't muster this kind of love in your own strength. Think about this. Jesus is saying, if you are going to inherit eternal life in your strength, you have to do these things, including loving those who you You must be like this Samaritan. You must make a treacherous journey, abandoning inclinations towards preserving your own safety. That's what this priest and Levite did. They, they were just self-preservation, just going to do my thing, put my head down, go my way. They probably had all the ways that they justified it in their mind as to why they'd be unable to save this man. And Jesus is saying you cannot take that road of self-justifying dishonesty. What he says you need is you need to recognize I cannot love my neighbor like this. I cannot love and serve God like this. I am undone. And when you are forced to abandon these last vestiges of your own self-righteousness, that is when you are ready to follow Jesus. The point of the story is not that you need to be like the Good Samaritan. Yes, there's application there where we need to try to love and serve those who it's not easy to love. But you can't do it to earn God's love. Rather, the heartbeat of this story is not that we need to be like the Good Samaritan. It's that you and I are the man lying half dead in a ditch on the side of the road. We need rescue from one outside of us. We need rescue from a true and better Good Samaritan who would incur all the costs that rests upon us, who would pay the, the, the fees for our healing, who would come in His great sacrifice and even give of Himself to the point of His death. You must look to Jesus who picks you up in your spiritual poverty and who heals you by His supernatural grace at total and complete cost to Himself. See, by His grace and through His work on the cross, that is how you receive His grace. And you are then freed to love the Lord your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I, um, back about six months ago, I, it, it, it was typical springtime where you're trying to catch up on cleaning up a lot of stuff around the yard. 
and getting ready for plants to start to grow and bloom and everything. And I came to the realization, partially, you know, with a couple of young kids and just having the burdens and the schedule demands and all that, that I had not been keeping up with weeds and plants and, and, and everything that I need to be keeping up on. Now, it doesn't help our house. I think the previous owner was quite a green thumb. There are numerous uh, plant beds that go through our backyard and a couple in the front yard and, and just like, like it, it was somebody that really knew their stuff. And I, I feel like I'm uh, desecrating their memory every time I, I try to go trim plants. But I would, I would get out there in the yard and I would, you know, whenever I had a free hour here, free hour there, free couple of hours, afternoon, whatever, I'd pull weeds, I'd try to, tra- I'd try to do these things. But as you are all very likely aware, whenever you get out and start doing yard work, one of the things you get done, you feel like you check off a few things on your to-do list, but somehow you only identify more and more stuff that needs to be done. That was the case with me last spring. And then one, one day I'm working, and I look up, and then my next-door neighbor has a landscaping crew that she knows, who they're there working full speed, total spring cleanup. So I did what any self-respecting property owner would do. I immediately ran over and tried to figure out if they were available to come to my house. And they did, and what I came to realize is they spent, this crew of four, spent all day at my house from like 7.30 in the morning until 8 p.m. It took them that long to do everything that needed to be done. And they, were, they had tools and they had equipment that I did not have. They had the ability to do things that I did not have the ability to do. And there I was thinking I could get out a free hour here, a free hour there, and do enough just to kind of catch up. And I had all these empty notions thinking that I could get my yard under control by my power. I needed an outside actor to come in and do it. That's what this parable shows us. If you think you can get your heart under control by your own power, you can't. You're the lawyer living in this dishonest, self-justifying nature. But if you lean on Christ by faith, and you continually trust in Him, He gives you that new heart. He begins to grow you. He begins to sanctify you. He begins to transform you. And in Him, you live and you have the ability to love even those that you once hated. Not because you mustered the energy in yourself, but because He who gave His life gave you a new heart. Let us forsake any notions of our own self-righteousness. Let us run to Jesus by faith.